Tired of the establishment, voting, fighting, battling. More years of Clinton Bush. No, I'm not having it. And no, it's not their turn. You folks have got to learn. Bernie Sanders and his message, you will feel the burn. 50 years of fighting, helping out the middle class. Not taking contributions from the likes of Citibank. Fossil fuels or Goldman Sachs. Wall Street or those corporate rats. Join the revolution, cause it's spreading all across the map. Skewed polls on CNN. Hillary is beating him. Pundits are redundant when they spin that narrative again. They say he got no chance. Want us to give up hope. But they can't stop the movement when you exercise your right to vote. And that was The Lyrical Burn by Lyrical Steel 412, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Lyrical Steel 412. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you want to find out more, you can check out my website at Bernie-2016.com. So, uh, as I recorded my last episode, it was the day of voting in three states, Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington. And I'll get to some of those results in a moment. But first, I want to read part of a piece about those results that I think speaks pretty pretty strongly to how many of us feel when we listen to the corporate media talk about Bernie Sanders and his chances these days. And this is from The New Yorker, newyorker.com. And this is by Andy Borowitz. Bernie Sanders failed to impress major media outlets over the weekend as he barely managed to win 70% of the vote in three Western primaries. The major cable networks briefly mentioned Sanders' vote tallies in Washington, Alaska, and Hawaii, but noted that he ran out of steam well shy of 80%. Quote, there's no point in sugarcoating it, one analyst put it. Rough night for Sanders. According to one cable executive, Sanders needs to, quote, put up some big numbers fast if he expects the networks to continue giving his campaign airtime. Quote, it's going to be harder and harder to justify covering him while he's stuck down in the 70 percent range, the executive said. While Sanders' campaign officials remain optimistic about the upcoming primary in Wisconsin, media outlets are calling it a do-or-die state after his sputtering finishes over the weekend. Quote, I think if he limps across the finish line with, say, 75 or 79 percent, it's going to be time for him to reassess things, one cable representative said. That would have been, that would have to be a wake up call. A spokesperson for CNN could not be reached for comment as the network was busy preparing a 90 minute special on the birth of Donald Trump's new grandchild. 
And I think hopefully you all uh, understood that that was a satirical piece. Um, Although in some of our minds, maybe not very far off the mark, but a satirical take on the media and how they respond to Bernie Sanders and his amazing success in the last three uh, elections, the last three uh, caucuses in the, the, the three states that voted on the 26th. Just to put it into a little perspective, uh, on the night of that vote, when you might think that some of the mainstream media might be covering something as important as uh, an election for the nomination for uh, the, the general election in the fall, you know, they, they seem to have a tremendous amount of interest in the other races up until now. But on that night, um, when those results started coming in, you know, the mainstream media was showing a, uh, a, a documentary about Jesus and another channel, another one of the mainstream, and I, I keep saying mainstream and, and I keep reminding myself and telling you that I need to stop calling them mainstream and start remembering to call them the, the corporate or the commercial media. And one of those other commercial media outlets was running a documentary on prisons and apparently just didn't have time to squeeze in the results of the elections in Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington State. So what do those elections look like? Uh, that story from uh, Andy Borowitz did give some hints to what the results looked like. This was a, a phenomenal uh, lopsided win for Bernie Sanders in all three states. Um, the polls going into these states were were rather slim, rather rare, but Bernie Sanders did have good chance in all of these states. And he, as he has in most of the recent races, he really blew away the estimates of just how well he would do. In Hawaii, in the Democratic caucus there, Bernie Sanders won 69.8% of the vote, just shy of the 70% mark. And Hillary won 30% of the votes in Hawaii. And when we head up north and take a look at the results from Alaska, uh, Alaska was absolutely amazing for Bernie Sanders. Bernie won 81.6% of the votes and Hillary Clinton won 18.4. So this is a huge lopsided, lopsided win for Bernie Sanders in both Hawaii and in Alaska. Uh, these are numbers that um, rival any numbers that Hillary Clinton has put up in any state. I remember the, uh, the results in Mississippi looked a little bit like this, but flipped over with Hillary Clinton winning 80 plus percent and Bernie Sanders coming back with about 16% or so. So Bernie Sanders has shown and proven that the support for him is out there and he can, you know, take states at uh, the same level, has that same kind of support out there in states 
that Hillary Clinton saw in the Deep South. And then when you take a look at the Washington Democratic Caucus, and this is the one where I thought Hillary Clinton really had her best shot, her best chance at uh, making the numbers fairly close. But I was absolutely wrong. Uh, Bernie Sanders won 72.7% of the votes in Washington state, and Hillary Clinton won 27.1%. Washington State had 100, has 101 delegates up for grabs. And while they all haven't been allocated yet to the candidates, uh, based on those percentage results, Bernie should should win about 70 of those delegates, and Hillary Clinton should come out with somewhere around 30. So Bernie Sanders had a um, big gain in delegates on the 26th. And is has cut Hillary Clinton's delegate lead in pledged delegates by uh, more than a fifth and a little bit less than a quarter with his wins out west. Another thing that came out of the uh, wins out west was the ongoing dismissive attitude of the corporate media. And this is not a surprise and not anything different than we've seen from the corporate media in the past. But you think that maybe there would be some slight change in the narrative when a candidate wins all three states, all three contests on this day by such enormous margins. And this is this is after the last uh, contest a couple days before where Bernie Sanders won two out of three on that day by very, very large margins, uh, both in Utah and in in Idaho, Bernie Sanders won by enormous margins. So five out of the last six states that voted, Bernie Sanders has won. And not only has he won those states, he's won those states by giant margins. In Washington, uh, Alaska, and Hawaii, Bernie Sanders won every single county in all three states. There was not a single place where Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders in any of those three states when you look at the county level. So you'd think that maybe there would be a little bit of a, a turn, a little bit of a an adjustment in how the media talks about Bernie Sanders, but uh, that was very hard to come by. Um, m- much of the media dismissed his wins in these three states by... Uh, calling these states largely white or mostly white or overwhelmingly white states when Hawaii actually is about 70% non-white and Alaska is in the top 10 states for um, diverse populations. So the media narrative doesn't align with the facts in that case. Now, had they said these states have very, very small African-American communities, that would be a little bit more accurate than portraying these states as largely white and trying to continue the, the false narrative that Sanders appeals only to white voters or primarily to white voters and only to young voters or primarily to young voters to win these states by such enormous margins, uh, Sanders has to have a fairly broad appeal. And there are certainly 
uh, groups and certainly communities and constituencies where Sanders does less well than with others. Um, but the, the blanket statements no longer apply. So uh, as I said, Wisconsin's coming up and Sanders has a good opportunity to do very well in Wisconsin. So we will see if he can uh, continue his winning streak and uh, bring home a win in Wisconsin. And then the uh, next big, big prize coming up is New York. And I have some more stories coming up on that battle. Uh, But this next piece is from Huffington Post Politics. And this is by Seth Abramson. The Democratic primary race changed fundamentally, indeed radically, after March 1st. And the national media's failure to register this and work it into their polling, projections, and punditry is one of the most wide-ranging public and ultimately influential journalistic failures of the last decade. In short, it's the reason supporters of Bernie Sanders have been tearing their hair out reading national media coverage that reports, and glibly, that the Democratic primary race is effectively over. So let's expose that radical sea change with some hard data analysis and thereby, for the first time, circumscribe the effects of the media's failure to catch it. In the first month of the current five-and-a-half-month Democratic primary season, Hillary Clinton scored 60% of the available delegates, 59.8% to be exact. Since then, Clinton has edged Sanders in the delegate hunt by a mere 2.2%, 51.1% to 48.9%. For the sake of brevity, let's say it's been a 51% to 49% race since March 1st. If the rather conservative projections for the upcoming Wisconsin and Wyoming votes turn out to be correct, that post-March 1st Clinton lead will narrow to 50.5 to 49.5%, a 1% differential, heading into the big primary in New York on April 19th. If Sanders overperforms in these two pre-New York votes to any degree, keeping in mind that in Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington, he outperformed projections by between 40 and 50 points. He will pull ahead in the post-March 1st delegate count. But let's stay in the present. Sanders has exceeded his delegate target in Kansas, Nebraska, Maine, Michigan, Illinois, Missouri, Idaho, Utah, Alaska, Hawaii, Washington, and the Democrats abroad primary. In five more contests, Louisiana, North Carolina, Arizona, Ohio, and the Northern Marianas, Sanders missed his target by a combined 28 delegates. That's an average miss of 5.6 delegates in these five contests, all of which were heralded as massive wins for Hillary Clinton. Only two states have really hurt Sanders over the last month, Florida and Mississippi. Indeed, not just the entirety, but far more than the entirety of Clinton's fractional delegate lead on Sanders since March 1st came from just those two contests. Since March 1st, Clinton has accrued 29 more delegates than Sanders, 
Out of 1,283 total delegates awarded during this month-long span. And Clinton netted 34 delegates on Sanders in Florida and Mississippi alone. But most of those net gains for Clinton, 25 delegates or 86% of her lead on Sanders since March 1st, came in Florida. And here's where things start to get interesting. Per New York Times exit polling, 67% of Floridians decided which Democrat to vote for prior to February 15th. In other words, weeks before the race began to turn in Sanders' favor, and before Sanders had made a substantial play for the state via live events and in-state ad buys. Another 15% of Florida voters made up their minds sometime between February 15 and March 8th. Of course, it wasn't clear that the race had turned in Sanders' favor until at the very earliest, March 6th, the morning after Sanders won Kansas and Nebraska and came within a hair of meeting his delegate target in Louisiana. So what percentage of Florida voters decided who to vote for after it was clear that the Democratic primary was shifting dramatically in Sanders' favor? 18% according to the exit polls. And how did those 18% vote in the Florida Democratic primary? Well, let's put it this way. Clinton won won among the 82% who made up their minds on March 7th or before by a count of 68% to 32%. Clinton won overall Florida primary vote by more than 31 points. Among those Florida voters who decided who to vote for in the final week before Election Day, Clinton won by just 13.4 points, 56.7% to 43.3%. Note that we're not talking about older voters and younger voters here, or early voters versus Election Day voters, but simply the date on which the voters made their final assessment of the Clinton-Sanders race. While it's true that early voting leads to an earlier final assessment of the candidates, and that for this reason, quote, Early voting isn't good news for candidates like Bernie Sanders hoping to make a last-minute splash in the race. That isn't what I'm analyzing here. Let's remember in any case that Florida is far and away the worst loss Sanders has suffered since March 1st as a matter of delegate math. But surely this is a fluke, you say. What happened in Mississippi, the other state that accounts for Clinton's narrow, roughly 2% delegate lead over Sanders since March 1st? Well, unfortunately, we don't know, largely because Mississippi doesn't yet do early voting and held its vote just 48 hours after it became clear that the race was starting to go Sanders' way. According to CNN exit polls, however, it's likely that well under 10% of Mississippi voters made their decision about who to vote for on March 6th, March 7th, or Election Day. So while we know that Hillary Clinton won Mississippi over Sanders by 66.1 points, and from CNN exit polling, that that margin was more than 10 points higher, 56 points, among Mississippians who decided who to vote for in their last week before Election Day. We don't have a breakout for the 48-hour window before the votes were counted. This means that while we know Sanders was beginning to close the gap as the final hours ticked away in what turned out to be one of his worst performances of the election season, we don't know by how much. We know he reduced Clinton's lead by at least 15% among late deciding voters, 
But if what happened in Florida also happened in Mississippi, the late, late deciding voters, the ones who'd seen Sanders' strong performance on March 5th, may well have been even more favorable to Sanders than that. In nearly every state that had it, early voting hurt Sanders in substantial part because it pushed more and more voters to make a final assessment of the Democratic primary campaign before that campaign had turned dramatically in Sanders' favor. And this, again, is why the Clinton campaign pushed for as many voters to vote early as possible. All the data they had suggested that the race would turn in Sanders' favor around March 5th, so they needed to bank as many votes as they could in advance of that happening. The point here is that Hillary Clinton has been losing the primary for a month now in votes cast after the race began to favor Sanders on March 5th. This means that most of the projections the media is making about how Bernie Sanders will do going forward are based on the election results, exit polls, and voter surveys compiled before that critical March 5th date. In other words, If you're a supporter of Bernie Sanders and you feel like you're stuck in the twilight zone every time you turn on cable news or listen to pollsters and professional pundits, you're absolutely right to feel that way because the nation's election experts are perpetually reporting live from March 1st, 2016. Fortunately for Sanders and his supporters, today is March 30th. And this story does go on longer with uh, some more figures and more numbers. But I thought that that was important to really just point out how the race has turned and some of the dynamics of the race in particular states. Um, The more people hear about and the more people learn about Bernie Sanders, the more people that decide to vote for Bernie Sanders. So early voting is a challenge for Bernie. If you look at the early voting results there are huge numbers of, uh, of those results that end up going in Hillary Clinton's favor. So as the, uh, the race goes on and as more and more people learn more and more about Bernie Sanders, hopefully we can make things shift. So we will shift gears on to the next story. And this next story is from Fortune dot com and this story is by ben geyer on sunday bernie sanders challenged hillary clinton to debate in new york her adopted home state and the state he was raised in before the crucial primary there next month the next day joel benenson clinton's chief political strategist went on cnn and said that clinton's decision on a possible debate would depend on the quote tone of the campaign Sanders was running. Statements like Benenson's make it seem like Clinton and her supporters think she should be able to run for the Democratic nomination unchallenged. We've seen this before, and it didn't work well for Clinton. In 2008, Hillary Clinton was seen by many as the inevitable Democratic candidate. Many campaign watchers have argued This is why her team in Iowa wasn't as sophisticated as Barack Obama's, allowing Obama to win that state's caucuses, which ultimately catapulted him to the nomination and the presidency. Now history seems to be repeating itself, at least partly. 
Clinton likely thought she'd have the nomination sewed up by now, if not much earlier in the primary race. She was clearly done debating with Sanders. But for one of Clinton's main advisors to call out Sanders for his, quote, tone, rings hollow. Sure, Sanders has been negative towards Clinton. He is, after all, running against her. But when you compare the tone on the Democratic side to that of the Republican race, or to almost any political campaign, it has been downright collegial. The Vermont senator has lobbed almost no personal attacks against Clinton. And Sanders hasn't hit her on the email scandal or Benghazi. Clinton is still the frontrunner for the nomination and is going to be a long and difficult general election, but as much as she may want the primary to be over, it isn't. And I think this is a major strategic move on the part of the Clinton campaign to uh, paint Bernie as negative and as attacking Hillary Clinton when he is doing no such thing. I mean, to point out your opponent's record or to point out the fact that your opponent takes enormous sums of money, both in campaign contributions and in personal payments for appearances and speeches, when a major part of your platform is getting the big money out of politics. I think that is a more than reasonable uh, tactic or more than reasonable um, item to, uh, to bring up and point out. When you're running against big money in politics, it only makes sense to talk about the big money that your opponent raises whether that opponent is Hillary Clinton or whether that opponent is somebody else. And at the moment, Bernie's opponent is Hillary Clinton. So it's not any surprise that he would be talking about her record and contrasting that with his own. Hillary does exactly the same thing. And I think uh, members of Hillary's extended campaign organization, as I spoke of last week, do a heck of a lot more they go very negative they they take a tiny kernel of truth and twist it so hard and so negatively against bernie sanders that it hardly resembles the truth that uh they began with and this next piece picks up on that as well and this is from inquisitor.com that's i-n-q-u-i-s-i-t-r Com. This is by Reno Berkeley. In a stunning show of weakness and petulance, Hillary Clinton has reneged on her agreement of two more debates and has said she will not debate Bernie Sanders until he treats her more nicely. In January, after a months-long back-and-forth about the lack of debates in the primary campaign, Clinton finally agreed to one debate per month through May. And the major reason why Clinton agreed to one debate per month through May was because Clinton knew that she was failing in the polls in New Hampshire and she desperately wanted another event to happen ahead of the New Hampshire vote. And it was Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley who said, yes, of course, we also want another debate, but we don't want just one debate here. We want a series of debates going forward. And Hillary Clinton agreed in principle 
to those debates. On Sunday, the Sanders campaign challenged her to a debate in New York prior to the state's primaries. Her commitment to more debates has flown out the window, apparently, as she has begun to accuse Sanders of running a negative campaign. Joel Benenson, Clinton's chief strategist, issued a warning to Sanders via an interview with CNN. Quote, the real question is, what kind of campaign is Senator Sanders going to run going forward? Let's see the tone. This is a man who said he'd never run a negative ad, and now he's running them. They're planning to run more. Let's see the tone of the campaign he wants to run before we get to any other questions. Benenson added that if Sanders reverts back to his original tone, then Clinton would consider more debates. Quote, let's see if he goes back to the kind of tone he said he was going to set early on. If he does that, then we'll talk about debates. The issue here is that Bernie Sanders has been more than nice to Clinton. At times, he's been painstakingly deferential to her, especially during the first few debates. His campaign has not turned negative. Negative would imply personal attacks along the lines of the feces flinging the Republicans are currently engaging in. On the contrary, Sanders is differentiating between himself and Clinton in terms of policy and track record. He is not attacking her. He is discussing the issues. Quote, I hope very much that as we go into New York, Secretary Clinton's home state will have a debate. And that was a tweet from Bernie Sanders. Yet discussing the issue seems to be something that Clinton does not want to do. It's not wrong for Sanders to point out that Clinton has received millions of dollars in donations from Wall Street. Campaign finance reform is one of his main platforms, so it makes sense he would illustrate the differences in how his campaign gets contributions versus hers. Hillary Clinton has a history of using her gender to her, her advantage. On the one hand, she claims to be a strong, independent feminist, able to take on men in power. On the other hand, she is quite willing to play the damsel in distress if someone calls her out on her questionable behavior or actions. Another point is that Clinton's claim that Bernie Sanders is now running a negative campaign is a not-so-subtle implication that he's a liar in order to avoid having to debate him in New York. Because there is very little, if any, scandal to dig up on Sanders, Clinton is attempting yet again to manufacture one by implying he is a sexist and a liar. But all that is no excuse for not having another debate. Fact is, Clinton is simply using Sanders' increased assertiveness to avoid another debate. Her refusal is a clear sign of weakness. If she is not willing to debate someone who is not afraid of putting her actions if she is not willing to debate someone who is not afraid of putting her actions and policies to the rope, she is not fit to be president. Her fabricated damsel in distress act is a far cry from the time she described how a person running for president should behave during her 2008 primary race against Barack Obama. Quote, you should be willing to debate anywhere, anytime. The video of her saying this also includes a comment about why she was really staying in the race. During that interview, she inadvertently let slip that she was continuing the race against Barack Obama until the convention in June because in 1968, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. 
She may not have consciously hoped Obama would be assassinated, but a large number of people interpreted that in, interpreted it that way. That wasn't the only time she made Ethos comment, either. She referenced Bobby Kennedy's assassination on several occasions as justification for her staying in the race in 2008. It's odd that Clinton would refuse to debate Sanders and what she now considers her state, especially ahead of the New York primary. Why is she stalling? Her umbrage with Bernie Sanders' insistence on running on the issues reeks of desperation and pettiness, and it's time to leave the gender politics by the wayside and agree to debate Sanders in New York. And since these stories came out, I think today, in fact, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign has kind of walked back that steadfastness against, uh, against debating in New York and have come out and said perhaps they would be willing to debate before the primary in New York on April 19th. So I think that uh, that would be a positive step to getting more information to more members of the public and uh, hope to see that debate happen. And the next piece is from the Burn Report. Com. First-time voters in New York registered in record-breaking numbers. And this is by G.A. Casebeer. While the registration period for voters in the state of New York has now passed, the surge of last-minute registers seems to bode well for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. In the 10-day period between March 10th and 20th, close to 41,000 new voters, energized by a platform that many of them can relate to, took the next step in getting involved with the political process. Nearly half of those have never voted before, a, a demographic that Sanders has dominated by large margins in states all over the country that have already voted. The 20,000 first-time voters that registered in New York is an, quote, unprecedented surge of voter interest, according to officials in that state. The delegate-rich state of New York votes on April 19 and is a key part of the campaign for Bernie Sanders and another chance for him to make up ground in the fight for pledged delegates. New York's online registration system saw close to 14,000 people register on Friday, March 18, which set a one-day record. Registrations closed on March 25, and no numbers are available yet for that day, but the push to get people registered was picking up even more steam heading up to the 25th. The Sanders campaign, along with many grassroots organizations across the country, have pushed hard to get more people involved, despite the near silence from Clinton's campaign and the Democratic National Committee. In previous election cycles, the DNC and Democrats in general made getting new people into the system part of the battle cry, but not this year, and most people know why. A first-time voter is an almost guaranteed vote for Bernie Sanders. So the uh, the time period for new voters to um, new voters or voters who had lapsed uh, to sign up um, to vote um, to register 
has passed in New York. And as that story pointed out, a big surge in new voters and in, in people registering to vote who had previously voted uh, in the last several days leading up to that deadline. So that was a deadline for new voters. But I think one thing that I've talked about before for New York in particular it, and which works against Bernie Sanders is that if you were already registered in New York, but you were not registered as a Democrat, if you were registered as an independent or a Republican or a third party, um, the deadline to switch your registration in New York was last fall. So before Bernie Sanders be- started to become very well known in this race, that deadline passed. And so a large number of potential voters in New York, and I would say potential Democratic voters in New York, were unable to change their party because the party set that deadline so early in the process. And as I've said about this topic and about other topics, there are many different ways that a party or a politician can disenfranchise voters. And as we saw, the shortage of polling places in Arizona is certainly one of the ways. A increase in the ID requirements to register to vote or to actually come and vote is another one of those ways. And another way is the setting the deadlines for registering to vote and setting the deadlines to change one's registration. So there are many different ways that voters can be disenfranchised. And uh, the Democratic Party in New York State has definitely um, picked up on one of those methods and uh, used it in this election. And onto a a topic that's in Bernie Sanders' platform. And uh, Bernie Sanders isn't just a candidate for president of the United States. He is a sitting senator for the state of Vermont. And as he runs for president, business still happens in Washington. And actually, you know, maybe the way I phrased that was more apt than I intended uh, as Washington kind of works for big business. But in any event... Um, this story from Bernie Sanders himself from his Senate website. Lawmakers to NIH and HHS act now on drug affordability. A group of Senate and House lawmakers led by Representatives Lloyd Doggett of Texas and Peter Welch of Vermont, co-chairs of the Prescription Drug Task Force, as well as Senator Bernie Sanders, today urged the Department of Health and Human Services and the National Institutes of Health to step in to lower the cost of a prostate cancer drug, Extandi, which costs four times more in the United States than in other major countries. Quote, When Americans pay for research that results in a safe and effective drug, an unreasonably high cost should not limit their access to it. New treatments are meaningless if patients cannot afford them, the lawmakers wrote in a letter to HHS Secretary Sylvia Burwell and NIH Director Francis Collins. 
In the letter, the members called on the NIH to hold a public hearing to consider overriding the patent on Extandi to make the drug available at a lower price. Under current law, NIH can take this step if federal funds supported a drug's development and the company is selling it at an unreasonably high price. Extandi was developed at the University of California, Los Angeles through taxpayer-supported research grants from the U.S. Army and NIH. The medication, which is sold by Japanese drug maker Astellas Pharma, has an average wholesale price in the U.S. of more than $129,000. It is sold in Japan and Sweden for $39,000, and in Canada for $30,000. Quote, we do not think that charging U.S. residents more than anyone else in the world meets the obligation to make the invention available to U.S. residents on reasonable terms, the members wrote. Sanders, Doggett, and Welch were joined by Senator Al Franklin, Sheldon Whitehouse, Amy Klobuchar, Patrick Leahy, and Elizabeth Warren, as well as Representatives Elijah Cummings, Jan Schakowsky, Rosa DeLauro, and Mark Pocan. Quote, when Americans pay for research that results in pharmaceutical drug that should be available at a reasonable price, said Doggett, ranking member of the Subcommittee on Human Resources of the House Ways and Means Committee and co-chair of the House Democratic Caucus Prescription Drug Task Force. The administration has said it is prepared to use its existing authority to address this problem on a case-by-case basis. It should do so now with Extandi. An unaffordable drug is 100% ineffective. Americans shouldn't have to choose between their lives and their livelihoods on this and many other outrageously priced medications. Quote, the United States government should use every tool available to lower outrageously high prescription drug prices, Sanders said. NIH has the power to stop this blatant profiteering and put the pharmaceutical industry on notice that the era of changing, charging unconscionable prices must end. So while Sanders continues his quest for the Democratic nomination, Uh, for President of the United States. He is still taking part in Senate activities, uh, doing his day job, so to speak, uh, while he is out and running for the nomination. This next piece is from 538.com. I've talked about this company and Nate Silver in particular, who is the author of this piece on a few occasions in the past because of his focus in his analysis on polling and on election results. After a trio of landslide wins in Washington, Alaska, and Hawaii on Saturday, the single best day of his campaign, Bernie Sanders narrowed his delegate deficit with Hillary Clinton. But he still has a lot of work to do. Sanders trails Clinton by 228 pledged delegates and will need 988 more a bit under 57% of those available, to finish with the majority. That alone wouldn't be enough to assure Sanders of the nomination, because superdelegates could still swing things Hillary Clinton's way in a close race. But put aside that not-so-small complication for now, the much bigger problem is that it isn't easy to see where Sanders gets those 988 delegates. 
If you're a Sanders supporter, you might look at the map and see some states, Oregon, Rhode Island, West Virginia, Montana, and so forth, that look pretty good for Sanders, a lot like the ones that gave Sanders landslide wins earlier in the campaign. But those states have relatively few delegates. Instead, about 65% of the remaining delegates are in California, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, all states where Sanders trails Clinton in the polls and sometimes trails her by a lot. To reach a pledged delegate majority, Sanders will have to win most of the delegates from those big states. A major loss in any of them could be fatal to his chances. He could afford to lose one or two of them narrowly, but then he'd need to make up ground elsewhere. He'd probably have to win California by double digits, for example. Sanders will also need to gain ground on Clinton in a series of medium-sized states, such as Wisconsin, Indiana, Kentucky, and New Mexico. Demographics suggest that these states could be close, but close won't be enough for Sanders. He'll need to win several of them easily. None of this is all that likely. Frankly, none of it is at all likely. If the remaining states vote based on the same demographic patterns established by the previous ones, Clinton will probably gain further ground on Sanders. If they vote as state-by-state -state polling suggests they will, Clinton could roughly double her current advantage over Sanders and wind up winning the nomination by 400 to 500 pledged delegates. But things can change and polls can be wrong. And so it's worth doing the math to see that what winning 988 more delegates would look like for Sanders. Call it a path of least implausibility. If you think Sanders can meet or exceed these targets, then you can say with a straight face that you think he'll win the nomination. If you think they're too good to be true, then you can't. Here's the Bernie miracle path that I came up with. And this piece, so if you want to see this piece, go to 538.com, search for... It's really hard to get Bernie Sanders 988 more delegates uh, because Nate Silver has included a chart here showing the remaining states that are still that still need to vote and the margins by which Bernie Sanders will have to win to pick up enough delegates to top Hillary Clinton in the delegate count. And to reach that, that magic number to win in the pledged delegate amount um, in the nomination on the, on the Democratic side. And it is a, a very challenging path for Sanders based on these numbers. Uh, Sanders, it, it, with all the numbers here, there's uh, three states that Sanders needs to win by nearly 50 percentage points. No, there's four of them, um, Wyoming, North Dakota, Montana, and Oregon all need to go for Bernie Sanders by enormous margins. Um, some others he needs to win by really big margins, Rhode Island, West Virginia, Kentucky, South Dakota, um, all states that he has a shot at winning, but, but with these big margins that are necessary to pick up enough delegates over Hillary Clinton, it will be a tough race. Um, he needs to win, based on the math that, that uh, Nate Silver put together, he needs to win all but three of the remaining 
states, um, which will be a big challenge. On on Sanders' uh, plus side for Sanders, you know, later in the race, more people are going to know who Sanders is. More people are going to know what Sanders stands for. And I think we've seen pretty pretty well that, you know, the more people know about Sanders, the more people understand what Sanders stands for and believes in, uh, the better he does. So I do think the, the remaining states, Sanders will perform better than he has in the earliest states when he was less well known out there. Um, so going on a little bit more in the story, uh, for Sanders to get a pledged delegate majority, even our original targets aren't enough now. They'd leave him 92 delegates short. So I kept, kept tweaking these numbers upwards till I got Sanders to 988 delegates. I was a bit more conservative about giving him extra delegates in states with substantial black or Hispanic populations, since Sanders has tended to underperform our original projections in, in those states. But mostly, I had to be very liberal, liberal about those extra delegates. I assume Sanders would narrowly win New York, for instance, even though he's trailed Clinton by margins ranging from 21 to 48 percentage points in recent polls there. Likewise, I had him winning Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where polls also have him down by 20-something points. And I had Sanders winning by a landslide 15-point margin in California, even though he's behind in the polls there also. I assume Sanders would win Oregon by the same enormous margin that he won Washington, Washington, even though Oregon is a primary state, while Washington held caucuses. I gave a blowout win to Sanders in Kentucky, even though neighboring Ohio and Tennessee easily went for Clinton. The most recent poll of Wisconsin, which votes next week, has Clinton winning there. I ignored it and assumed Sanders will win by 16 percentage points instead. The demographics do look pretty good for Sanders in the Badger State. But is Connecticut a good state for Sanders? I'm not so sure. Its demographics are more Ralph Lauren than L.L. Bean. I gave it to Sanders anyway. I assume Sanders would win Puerto Rico because it's a caucus, even though Clinton has much of the party establishment behind her. New Mexico? Nearby Arizona and Texas went overwhelmingly for Clinton. But let's give it to Sanders. You get the picture. It's not hard to imagine Sanders meeting these super optimistic projections in a few of the states, but he'll have to do so in all of the states or else he'll have even more ground to make up elsewhere. If he loses Wisconsin, for instance, or only narrowly wins it, that's more votes he'll need to win in New York or California. So, you know, this assessment of the balance of the race really points out that there's still an enormous challenge for Bernie Sanders to come out on top in the pledge delegates. So it just uh, points us to the amount of work that is still out there that we have to do. You know, if Bernie can, can continue to pick up states, if he can win the next two, if he can win in New York, which will be a tremendous feat in my opinion at this point, um, then then he might he might be on track he might be on track to to continue to dominate the balance of this race and to 
eat away at Clinton's delegate lead and, and end up on top. And I am hopeful that that can happen, but that can only happen if we make it happen. If the supporters of Bernie Sanders and the voters that uh, like what they hear get out and vote. If if the voting, you know, if the if the the voting turnout is very high, then Sanders has a shot. If the voting turnout is not strong on the balance of this race, then it's going to be very tough for Sanders to to pull it out. You know, I'm a huge supporter of Sanders, and I am doing what I can to help him win. But uh, it, it's a challenging a challenging race for Bernie Sanders. But but based on where we started, based on where Bernie started, based on where Hillary Clinton started, I don't think there were very many people out there that thought that Bernie Sanders would win this race, or not even that. There were almost nobody in, in the corporate media and the punditry out there that gave him any chance whatsoever. If you remember back to the beginning, uh, they all treated him like, oh, it was a, uh, a quaint little um, prospect for Bernie Sanders to try to run against Hillary Clinton, who had already sewn up so much support in the media, in the, uh, in the fundraising world, and in the establishment you know, politicians, the senators, the republic, the, the not the Republicans, the senators, the uh, the governors, the uh, representatives is what I intended to say when I misspoke and said Republicans. Um, Hillary Clinton just has so much enormous support that Bernie Sanders getting where he is now and starting to win state after state is absolutely phenomenal still a very very hard road from here but it is not undoable and we need to make sure that we do it so part of his campaign uh travels out west and uh his travels in california he told california that uh they're going to see so much of him they're going to be tired of him pretty soon uh, that's how much time he's going to and needs to spend in California to win that state. And he is uh, prepared to do it. Of course, he needs to do that in many, many other states as well. Um, so it will be uh, a continued world whirlwind of Bernie Sanders traveling as he runs for president. But in one of those travels, uh, he sat down with the L.A. Times editorial board. I gave a pretty wide-ranging um, interview with that board. So there were several people that were interviewing him. And I have a couple of excerpts from that. I uh, wish there was a recorded uh, piece based on that, but I'm not sure that there is one anywhere. But you can get the uh, transcripts of that interview from latimes.com. And they have titled it, Bernie Sanders Discusses His Prospects of Beating Donald Trump with the LA Times Editorial Board. Here's a couple of excerpts from that transcript. 
So this first question is from, or this first question I'm going to read is from John Healy. Can you talk about having been a senator through several presidencies? The last couple, George Bush and Barack Obama, have taken a certain amount of criticism for their use of executive power. Could you talk about your view of executive power and how you see the limits or lack thereof on the office? And this is Sanders' reply. I think what President Obama would tell you, and he's a better lawyer than I am, is that using executive power is not the preferred approach. The preferred approach is legislation for all the reasons that you know. It's more permanent. It cannot be changed by the next administration easily. But I think in terms of President Obama, and I am on the Senate floor, I've been there for as long as he has been president, what we have seen is an unprecedented level of obstructionism. I'm not telling you anything that I think most of you don't know. Literally, on the day Obama was sworn in, there was a meeting of Republicans who determined that their best course of action was to obstruct. And that's what they did. Many people on the outside, you've got to be in the Senate and on the floor to see what that means. It means that minor appointees, I'm not talking about Supreme Court justices, I'm talking about minor appointees, have had to get 60 votes. It was slow down, slow down, slow down. And the Senate was brought to almost a halt. And that was their plan. Their plan was to say to the American people, quote, see this guy Obama? He, could, he couldn't do anything. Vote for us. And I think the president finally caught on, and I think that was unacceptable. And in immigration areas and in other areas, he used the powers that he had, and I strongly support that. It's not the best way, but I think it's an appropriate response to that circumstance. And there was a little bit of back and forth, and then he went uh, went on with this response to that that back and forth. I expect most of you are very familiar with our ambitious agenda, but what I have also said, if you listen to my speeches, that is no president, not Bernie Sanders or anybody else, is going to implement that agenda or literally do anything of significance for the American people unless there is a political revolution. And that's not just rhetoric. I don't think, well, these are just nice sounding words. It's not. And this is where my candidacy is profoundly different than Secretary Clinton's or obviously anyone else's. And you'll agree with me or not agree with me. I suspect most of you will not agree with me. But the truth is that today, in my view, the powers of what I would call the ruling class, that is Wall Street, that is corporate America, that is the wealthy campaign contributors, that is corporate media, which has a lot of power, are so great that there is no way we are going to address the crises we face in this country unless millions of people become involved in the political process in a way that they don't right now. That is, to mind, the only way that we are going to transform this country. So if the question is, am I going to sit down with Mitch McConnell and say, hey, Mitch, you know, I think we need to make public colleges and universal and universities tuition free. We need to significantly lower student debt, and we're going to do that with a tax on Wall Street speculation. And do I expect Mitch to say, gee, Bernie, why didn't I think of that? That's a fantastic idea. You've got my support. Or, quote, 
We're going to raise the minimum wage, Mitch, to 15 bucks an hour. What do you think? And we're going to get going on climate change. We're going to join the rest of the industrialized world and have a national health care program and Medicare for all. Do I think Mitch is going to say, Bernie, these are great ideas. Let's get going on them. No, no. The way you implement that agenda is a way that change has always taken place in this country. And that is when people stand up and demand it. You know, Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. That was great. But he signed it because millions of people for years had demanded that we end segregation and that we provide voting rights to minorities in this country. Women's rights, the whole thing, gay rights, those always start on the bottom. That's what this campaign is about. I have not the slightest doubt, the slightest doubt, after having given a hundred speeches on this subject, that if the young people of this country, and their parents, by the way, become mobilized, of course we're going to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. Because that is an idea whose time has come. First grade through 12th grade for public education is no longer good enough. The world has changed. People need more education. That idea will pass. No question about it. The question is, is it now or is it some years from now? But it will pass and it will pass faster if young people become mobilized. And there was some other some other questions and back and forth. And then Scott Martell uh, asked this question. But how do you mobilize that many people, given voter apathy, voter cynicism, the sense, even though you're not, that all you guys are the same? Sanders' response, good, very good question. And if I had the definitive answer, I would give it to you. But I'll tell you something that has really gratified me in this campaign. And that is an absolutely fair question, and it is not easy. What you're really asking is, at a time when we have one of the lowest voter turnouts of any major country on earth, at a time when many people don't even know the name of the vice president of the United States, do a poll. Ask people if they know which party controls the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. You'd be surprised at the results. Many people don't even know the answer to that, all right? So what you're saying is, how do you turn that around? And that is very, very difficult. And I don't have a magical solution. But what I will tell you, which has been enormously gratifying to me, just yesterday, it's not just what we won with 78% of the vote or whatever it was in, Ohio, in Idaho and Utah. Voter turnout was at an all-time high. In Maine, we had people waiting in line for hours in order to participate in a Democratic caucus there. And that was an all-time high. Now, Obama in 2008 rewrote the rules, the record book, in terms of running a good campaign. It was a brilliant campaign. Turnout was off the charts. The fact that in this campaign already, I'm no Barack Obama, but in this campaign already, in state after state after state, we have higher voter turnouts. And we have young people involved in a way that has not been seen. Go to some of my rallies. Go to the rally that we had last night in San Diego. We had 15,000 people out. Two-thirds of them probably under 30 years of age. So I think we're making some progress. But how do you create a grassroots democracy? I'm not going to bore you with all the details. We have some ideas. There are great groups out there right now that are knocking on doors, that are talking to people, that are trying to mobilize the people. We worked with them in Iowa. We've worked with them all over the country. 
But that is the challenge, and that is what has to be done. So when you ask me about my first 100 days, it's not just proposing a list of legislation, which we will do, and I'm happy to talk about it. It is, in fact, answering your question and beginning to redefine what American politics is. And that is not a handful of people sitting in Capitol Hill, you know, compromising and making all these things. That's fine. You've got to do that. I've done it. But it's mobilizing the American people that represents all of us and not just the 1%. So those were some pieces of uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, interview with the LA Times and with the editorial board of the LA Times. And there's a lot more content in that interview. So I definitely highly suggest you uh, check that out and read more about what Bernie had to say to the questions that they posed to him. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. You can click through there to my Flipboard magazine called Bernie for President and read the articles that I've collected on Bernie there. And if you want to support this podcast, you can also follow a link on that site to patreon.com slash unrelated things, and you can make a donation to help keep this podcast going. And thanks to everybody who's rated this podcast on iTunes or provided a review on iTunes. I really appreciate that as well. That will help this podcast be noticed by more people and get the word out to more people who have some interest in finding out what Bernie Sanders is all about. And as we go out this episode, we will hear Pants Valore. If you go onto YouTube and search for Pants Valore, you will find this song called Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Thanks for listening. Hotel. <laughs> Damn. Than your average candidate Bernie 16 competition can't handle it Cause he focused on the issues Racial inequality Middle class misused And that ain't even the half of it Wall Street, yo, you better feel the wrath of it Cause Bernie don't like when banks get greedy Run out of money then take from the needy And when it comes to the super pack Big Burn gonna give him that super smack So long are the days of Freddie and Mac From the White House screaming We're Brooklyn Bernie, 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 can't you see? I'm voting for you in 2016. And I just love your liberal ways. Taking on Trump cause he's too paid. Bernie, 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 can't you see? I'm voting for you in 2016. And I just love your liberal ways. That's why you win the presidency. It's the same old Bernie in a brand new age. Helping the vets and raising minimum wage. Real policy to make America better. Coming straight from Vermont and he's sharper than 
pancetta and the GOP, they don't like that. Healthcare for all, they don't like that. They call him Band-Aid Burning because he laying in the cut. 2016 burned down for what? A political revolution. Bernie run, 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 the crew run, run. Democratic socialist, fly like a birdie. Voters say show me, burn it, burn it. Bernie, 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 can't you see? I'm voting for you in 2016. And I just love your liberal ways. Taking on Trump cause he's too paid. Bernie, 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 uh-huh. can't you see? I'm voting for you in 2016. And I just love your liberal ways. That's why you win the presidency. Health girl, Bernie got a plan for that. Big Bernie got a plan 